Hi, everyone. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to our podcast, Overcoming Imposter Syndrome in Academia, brought to you by the American Thoracic Society Training Committee as part of our Career Development Core Training Series. I'm Vaishnavi Kundel, co-chair of the Research and Career Development Core, Core Training Group and program director of the Mount Sinai Sleep Medicine Fellowship in New York City. I will be co-hosting today's podcast along with my colleague, Dr. Asha Anandaya. Thanks, Vishnavi, and welcome, everybody. My name is Asha Anandaya. I also serve on the ATS Training Committee, and I'm uh, the program director of the Mass General Beth Israel Deaconess Harvard Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship in Boston. I'm excited to be here for this in, uh, discussion of this incredibly important topic with our two excellent panelists, Dr. Terry Laguna and Dr. Anissa Das. Dr. Laguna is a professor of pediatrics at the University of Washington and division chief of pulmonary and sleep medicine at the Seattle Children's Hospital and assembly chair of the ATX Pediatrics Committee. As an underrepresented minority in medicine, she is passionate about and active in diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives locally as well as regionally and nationally. And Dr. Das is a professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at The Ohio State University and assistant director of the Sleep Disorders Program at OSU. She also serves on the Board of Regents for CHEST and is a program chair for the CHEST 2023 conference. She is senior author on a recently published review article in CHEST on the topic of imposter syndrome. We're so excited to have you both today for um, discussing this important topic. Um, and just moving forward, you know, we kind of discussed, we're um, going to go by first names. Um, so um, Terry and uh, Anissa, welcome. Thank you Thank so you. much for having us. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Great. All right. Terrific. So um, let's dive in. So I just want to start by asking you both, um, as we get started, what is your understanding of imposter syndrome? And do you think it manifests, how do you think it manifests in an academic setting? Well, I'm happy to take a first stab at that. Um, you know, my understanding of, of imposter syndrome really kind of equates to somebody feeling like, like an individual feeling as if they don't belong, that they are, you know, somewhat fraudulent and that they're just waiting for somebody to figure out that they are really not as smart or not as talented or capable um, and, and kind of pull the rug out from underneath them. So it, it's really kind of that individualized feeling, um, an internal metric of, I just don't belong in the situation that I'm in. Um, I actually just wanted to make a quick comment about the title of this podcast with overcoming imposter syndrome. Um, I think it's a little bit of an ironic title. And I think a lot of us, including myself, deal with imposter syndrome. And, you know, I think overcoming is something that we all strive to do. Uh, but I think just calling calling it out and talking about it and having this podcast, I think is a fantastic first step, uh, because it certainly is widespread in academia. Uh, from the minute we start in medical school, even, be, even before that, through all the different stages of our faculty careers. Terry, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and that's really the irony is that it's it's right. We, we talked about it. It's a sense of fraudulent and successful people. And where do you have more successful people than among academia and medical students and people who have been 
literally comparing themselves against their peers for the past two decades of their lives, which really, I think, unfortunately sets you up for, for imposter syndrome, right? It's that, it's that comparison. Uh, not to be confused with humility. I do think that we need to point, I always say a, a good solid dose of humility is a good thing. Um, I think the difference between humility is the sense that you don't truly deserve the success that that you've achieved and that you're you don't belong among your peers. Great. I think that's a that's a fantastic, fantastic points and, and great thing to say. Dr. Das, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um this topic and the importance because you authored as uh Vaishnavi alluded to uh, in the introduction, um, an article um, in Chest um, in 2019, you co-authored this piece about imposter syndrome. And um, I just wanted to ask you sort of why, what motivated that? Why do you think this is an important topic to bring to light, you know, in academic medicine? Yeah, I'm, it's a great question. So it, it's sort of the story of why national organizations are so important, right? So I was giving a um, panel discussion at a trainee, um, at, at sort of a, a trainee session about imposter syndrome. And there were five of us on the panel. And the feedback from the session was so tremendous because, you know, despite the fact that the prevalence in most studies ranges somewhere between 25 and 50 percent, I will tell you that, granted, there may have been a, um, a bias based on the, the audience, but there was about a 90% agreement of folks saying that they felt that they they shared those same feelings. And there was so much feedback that it was helpful to understand that they weren't the only ones and there were more people. So the subsequent year, we did a similar panel. And at the end of the of the uh, that panel discussion, it was actually the panelists who got together and said, you know what, we really need to write this up. And I think that we need to draw attention to it, not just among ourselves, but among our trainees and how we can identify it in trainees and, and help from both perspectives. And that's so interesting um, just to know that there was such an organic inception to that paper um, uh, coming out. And I think sort of certainly introducing it into the lexicon so people are recognizing it more that we'll talk more about, um, I know is one of the main points um, that you made in that paper. Um, also, I think just educating folks around not just its existence, but a little bit more about it was part of that. And can you share a little bit more with us about, um, you discussed a little bit about prevalence already, but also some of the subtypes of imposter syndrome, just as we familiarize ourselves and our audience with, with what it entails. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, and the when we talk about the the subtypes, we are you know referring actually to prior authorship and that it's it's been discussed before, but it's really relatable. And there's five different subtypes that you you might think you fall into. And the first one is the perfectionist. And that is if it's not a hundred percent perfection, it's a failure. So, right. So that's the whole, if you're, if you're not first, you're last, right. That, that concept. Um, and so they always focus on what could have been done better, even though they might have a great achievement. Well, it could have, this could have been better. The second would be the natural genius. Um, and theirs is um, the sense that, well, I had to work really hard for this. So maybe I didn't deserve it. I have to work 10 times harder than my peers who it seems to come easier, more easily for them. Um, so they feel like their hard work and perseverance 
ironically, is a negative trait to them. Um, the third one would be a, a super woman or superman or super student. And so they believe that competence is the ability to juggle numerous roles. At, you know, we all talk about how we wear a ton of hats, right? And they have to be able to do that successfully, successfully. And then falling short in even one thing, even though you might be doing 20 things at once, is overall failure, right? So you're doing a million things, but you forgot to give your kid lunch that day and they had to buy lunch. And oh my gosh, I'm a complete failure at everything. But the reality is that you're doing 20 different things. Um, and then the fourth one is the expert. And theirs is, um, it's really a competence is assessed in their own mind as the volume or knowledge or skill that they have. And they are always thinking that, you know, I don't know enough. And so the fear being exposed is other people may not think that I, I know in, as much as others, right? And my colleagues and I were just talking about this. We were just teaching board review. And one of them whispered to me, do you ever feel like you're the faculty member who knows the least out of mind all of us? I'm like, every single time, right? And the reality is it's because you know the most in your own specific narrow scope of things, but you hear people talking about different things. You're like, dang, I didn't know that. So I think that that's something we can all relate to. And then the final one is the soloist. And they, they're the ones where they feel like if they got help from anyone, then they weren't really successful. Well, yeah, I did it, but I had to ask for help. Oh my gosh, right? Like we all are a community. And I think the way that medical school and training programs have changed to group metrics and group learning is starting to help abate that a bit. But but that's that final, the final um, characteristic. Anissa, well, can, I, can I just ask, make a comment here? Because, you know, as I was reading, so as, as I was getting ready to, for this podcast and doing some reading, I, I read this article again, I read, read it in the past and then I read it again. And, you know, you read these five different subtypes and you're like, that's me, that's me, yeah. that's me too. <laughs> oh yeah, that's me as well. Like, can you be all five at yeah. the same time? Or Absolutely. And I think the idea is just to give the different flavors that you might have. Right. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. I feel like at least three of them are me to a T. Um, yeah. But it helps for folks to identify to identify different aspects so that they can identify what they need to really think about countering. Right. Yeah, as as they work to, as you said, not overcome, but cope with it better. Right. Yeah, just to piggyback on Terry's comment, like I was reading the article and I actually surprisingly identified with a lot of those. And I was a little bit like, wow, this is, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, this is a little concerning maybe. Um, but also full disclosure, interestingly, I learned about imposter syndrome very late. And like, I feel like it was in my fellowship and we had a talk on it. And I was like, wow, I didn't realize there was a word for this you know, so that actually just putting a label on it was, was helpful for me because, you know, it makes you feel like, okay, other people are experiencing this too. Um, so just uh, kind of um, going from there, uh, have you guys personally experienced imposter syndrome in your academic journey? And um, if so, could each of you share uh, an example and how you went about managing it? Um, and we can start with um, Terry. Yeah, so it's a matter of choosing which example uh, to give. Uh, to give, there's there's quite a few uh, to choose from. So, um, I I think I'll I'll choose the example of the first time that I um, I basically was invited to participate as a member in, in a study section for the NIH, 
And I had, I had just gotten my first R01. And so that put me into imposter syndrome already. Like, how did I get this? And, and, you know, are they sure, are they sure that this was the right person to award it to? And then I was invited to participate in the study section and it's, it's called LCMI, which is very um, basic science focused. And, um, and I walk into the first study section meeting and, you know, sit down amongst this group of highly accomplished, um, highly funded uh, just group of individuals. And I sat there and I was looking around and I was like, my God, is this really, do I belong here? Like here are all these individuals whose papers I've read, who's, you know, are cited over and over again in the literature. And I'm going to be on the study section. And, you know, as the day went on, I wish I could say it got better, but it got worse because people were, you know, really, you know, as you said, Anissa, they're talking about their area of expertise and they're, you know, they're extraordinarily accomplished. And, you know, I really totally felt like it was just, it was a place that I, I, I didn't belong and it was uncomfortable. It was this really uncomfortable where it was like, wow, maybe this isn't, this isn't the right place for me. Um, you know, you talk about how, how I overcut or how I overcame it and what was the way that I managed it. Well, I'll tell you that a commitment to a study section is four years. <laughs> so <laughs> I was going to get to experience it again and again and again. And, you know, that was, I started, you know, a number of years ago. So it really was a matter of me just understanding and focusing on what my area of expertise was and knowing that that was my area and that's what I knew the best and that I was there to learn that, you know, I wasn't expected to be perfect perfectionist, that I could be okay with just learning what other people had to share, and that I had enough knowledge of the process and of how to write a grant, how to read a grant, how to interpret science, that I was going to be able to do a good job and evaluate the science and advocate for the science that I felt deserved to be funded. And I think each time I got a little bit more comfortable, because again, I had it three times a year, you get to experience this. And you know, it's still sometimes I have issues with, you know, with this imposter syndrome, because it's a tough, it's a, you know, it's, it's a very accomplished crowd to be a part of, but, but it's me and just telling myself, you know, back to Ted Lasso, I am a capable person. I am a capable woman. I can do this. I am a scientist. Uh, and just, you know, reminding myself of what my strengths are and, and trying to be okay with that. So I, um, I can, all of that resonates with me with the exception of study section. And that's actually why. So as somebody who does not do a lot of basic research or research, that's probably when my, when my fear and imposter syndrome probably rises to its peak. When I'm giving big international or national talks among people who are presenting their own research and, are, and most recently, um, I, I can't, I think I was giving a talk and Atul Mohocho was giving one of the other talks and and I was teasing him after I'm like, yeah, it's easy for you to give a talk because you're referencing your own paper every other slide. And so <laughs> I was like, it's much harder, right? Um, so I think that has been a big fear of mine. And 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 I always tell folks, imposter syndrome is a problem when it's when it's limiting your success, right? So if it if that fear overcomes and makes you not apply for things or not do things, and that's that's when it's a problem, and that's when it sort of goes beyond humility. Um and it, for me, 
I was very afraid to apply for leadership roles and to, you know, tell people I was interested in in teaching in um, postgraduate courses. And fortunately or unfortunately, this is probably why I talk so much about mentorship and sponsorship and the importance of it, is I've been fortunate enough to have really strong mentors and more importantly, sponsors who have said, Anissa, I really think that you're a great candidate for this. And I think you should do these things, right? So that has been a huge role for me or important role for me. Um, and then ironically, my my current division chief didn't realize that he was telling me to do one of the techniques that's actually in our paper. So for the perfectionist, which I 100% am, like I have a very, very hard time completing something because I want to keep going back and I'm worried that it's not right and I could make it better. And so I had very, very, I mean, that causes a tremendous amount of stress for me. And so finally he said to me, he goes, Anissa, I'm just going to tell you something. You just need to start putting things out at 50% because it's probably equal to 100% of a lot of people. And I was like, what? But I, that was, I only kept that in my head, right? And so that's actually a, a tool called shipping um, that we call. So shipping is a mechanism where you ship something out before it's fully ready to be done. And we steal that from the business world. But that's a method that we use to sort of counter perfectionism. So I try to say oftentimes, is it good enough? Because that's how we do more things. And that's how I've been able to juggle more hats because otherwise I can't take on new responsibilities unless I can be like, I think this is going to be okay. And then I always add on, if you guys need corrections or things that needs to be better, please let me know. Right. I still add that at the end, <laughs> but that's, that's sort of how I've addressed it. Just hearing you talk about shipping gives me some anxiety. Like what? <laughs> <laughs> Sending it out without it being perfect. I know, right? Oh, no. <laughs> And that is, that's really, really hard. And yeah. so I think what you do is you say, it's not when you know that there's flaws, but when you're like, could it be better? That's when you send it out and you say, it's going to be okay. Right. Or I can look it over one yeah. more time in the morning, but I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> well, that's great. Thank you both so much for sharing those personal examples. And I think it really means a lot to hear folks like you um, who are leaders in our field and in our professional societies, really sharing both, you know, you know, actually fairly recent, right, in your kind of professional, like, attending faculty careers, um, examples of how this can persist, but also kind of ways that you manage it. And you touched on some specific things. I think, Terry, you talked about kind of the, it was transitioning to a new environment and a new group of peers that really was an issue. And then for you, Anissa, bringing up mentors and mentorship. And I think those are things we're going to touch on um, a little bit later as we move through um, our questions. But I wanted to, um, ask you, Terry, the next question, um, just to dive a little deeper on the sort of some of the intersectionality that can come up with imposter syndrome, given your background and passion for DEI. I was wondering if you could comment a little bit on that, on some of the cultural and gender related factors that um, can influence imposter syndrome and how we can address those intersectional aspects, um, you know, thinking about the, the importance, particularly as we all work to promote diversity and inclusion. Yeah, absolutely. This is a, a critically important topic. And, you know, it's probably it, it's worth saying that, you know, I, I am Mexican. Um, I also uh, am a lesbian from the gay community and I'm a woman. And so I have multiple intersectional identities uh, that are known to be underrepresented in medicine. And, you know, a lot of I think a lot of my my choices in my career path uh, and choosing to become a leader um, in my community and also within ATS has really been fueled by 
me being an underrepresented minority. So I'm going to tell another just quick story because I think it it really shows I think the importance of people who are from underrepresented minorities um, being in leadership positions. So I was I was recruited to be a division head uh, from Minneapolis. I moved to Chicago and I was it was my first division head role um, at Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. And I show up on my first day to get my photo taken for my ID badge. And I got my picture taken. The photographer, who was a, a woman, sent me the photos afterwards and included a little message in the photos that she sent me. In the, in the email body of the message said, Dr. Laguna, you're, you're pretty and all, but I think we should retake these. And could you wear a blazer and a necklace of pearls? And I, I read that and I was like, wow. Okay, so I don't look like the person that I should in order to be in a position of leadership. And you want me to dress like someone that you envision when you think of a division head. And that was my introduction to being a, in a person in a, in a leadership position at this institution. And, you know, when you read the literature, there are very few underrepresented minorities who are women that are in leadership positions, let alone what, two to three percent of full professors in the medical field are women of underrepresented minorities. And so this is critically important because so many times in our journeys in academic medicine, we are we are treated as if we are not good enough. And we just don't see people who look like us in leadership positions who can help advocate, mentor, sponsor those coming after us. So it, it took me a while to realize that people actually valued what I had to say, and this probably interrelates very much with imposter syndrome, that who would want to listen to me, who would want to hear what I have to say or hear about my journey. However, because of my experiences and being how I've been treated as a new leader, it really just motivated me to really need or feel like I needed to represent and to really help, you know, be that person to help bring up future generations of underrepresented minorities and people who belong to different gender identities and have different backgrounds. Um, because it's hard. It is a difficult journey um, for women, for people from underrepresented backgrounds, people with disability, different gender identities, you name it. Um, it's, it's, it's challenging. And imposter syndrome, which I'm sure Anissa will tell us, is very much overrepresented in people um, from underrepresented backgrounds. And so it's, you know, the diversity, equity, inclusion is so important and representation um, in leadership positions is one way to help show people that, yeah, you can do this. And, you know, being open to helping and mentor and sponsor people is, is a way to help help address that. Um, yeah, thanks, Terry, for sharing that personal story. And um, I think, you know, it's it's helpful for uh, people from the underrepresented, from underrepresented backgrounds to kind of see people like you in leadership. And um, also to recognize that, you know, imposter syndrome exists and it's probably much more prevalent in, um, in people from underrepresented backgrounds. So um, thank you so much for sharing that. Sure. Um, so let's move on to the next question. It's gonna be a two-part question for the both of you. Um, so, now that we've kind of discussed, you know, imposter syndrome and the prevalence and and where we're most likely to see it, how can we as mentors be better equipped in recognizing imposter syndrome in academia, um, specifically with our mentees? 
And how can mentorship play a role in alleviating it and providing meaningful support? And kind of to piggyback a little bit off that question, which um, is, are there any structural changes that, you know, academic institutions could uh, potentially implement to uh, create more of an inclusive and supportive environment that then minimizes the development of imposter syndrome? And uh, Anissa, if you want to go first. Sure. So I think, first of all, you're right. I've, I've commented on the importance of mentors. Um, that it, I, I will honestly say my mentors have made my career. Like, okay, that's probably also my imposter syndrome speaking, right? Ironically, but they have. There's so many things that I would never have done had people not encouraged me. Actually, so um, Patricia Rivera, the current president has been, she she knows this very much. I tell her all the time, she has made me the woman I am today. So she trained me um, and I have modeled much of my career, both in family and work around her because she would tell us daily. I mean, she would almost verbatim say, you are good enough and you can do this. And if you ever showed any hesitancy towards something, she would she would admonish you like a parent. Absolutely do not. I do not want to hear those words from you, right? And so- constantly just not allowing allowing people to to be down on themselves and, and correcting that behavior which again is part two is some of the behaviors you can do is, is doing a mind uh, changing your mindset right so the second you hear that is shifting your mindset um I, I will say probably 50 percent of the role leadership roles I have held have I've only applied for because somebody else told me I should apply that that tells you that I still have imposter syndrome and that tells you the use of sponsorship has made a huge difference in my life. And that's what I say when I say that I think my mentorship and my, the sponsorship I've received has made my career, because even though I've, I've done those things, I would have been too, I would have not felt that I was worthy for those positions. It's also gotten me to not be afraid of failure in that sense. So there's been positions and some of you people have said this is, you know what, you should apply for things that you're pretty sure you're not going to get. Um, because number one, there's, significant data that's been published in the um, Harvard Business Review that women tend to apply for things much later than men. Um, when we only meet 100% of the criteria, whereas men may, you know, may apply when they only meet 50% of the criteria. So I'm a believer that just going through the process of applying for something, whether it be a grant, whether it be a leadership role, whether, you know, it be for um, a new job, that process is such a growth process that it's worth it. So there's that. Um, and then the second part about regarding um, structural changes, I think um, one, if we can sort of shift our mindset from, um, and which is hard and I don't know how to truly do this, but making us feel as if we're always pitted against each other, which doesn't go away at any point of our of academia, right? It starts in medical school. And I think it goes all the way through to who's competing against who for what grant, for what position, but really thinking more of a mindset of group and like not, not talking more about, well, were you first author or last? No, were you a collaborator on this project, right? Like, because I mean, at our institution, first and last author is very, very important, right? And it's, as is most academic institutions, but I will argue that that decreases emphasis on collaboration and contributing to things and devalues the contribution. Um, so that's one thing. And then on the flip side, so I run our division mentorship program for our new faculty. And one thing that we have done um, is one, just implementing that, right? And making sure you have somebody to be there when you first start. But number two, 
one of the things that we do is we have self-assessments and then assessments by the mentor. Um, and the self-assessment is where you think you are on your success, on um, your success clinically, academically, meeting deadlines, all these things, and then where your mentor sees you. And that's a really good way to help identify imposter syndrome when their metrics are much lower than about themselves than the mentor sees. I think that's an opportunity to intervene and identify imposter syndrome earlier. Okay, those are a lot of words. I'm done. Um, yes to everything that Anissa said. The mentorship and sponsorship um, has been key to my career as well. Um, the one comment that I will make in regards to structural changes that academic institutions can make um, is, to, is to create a safe space for people to talk about this. So, you know, one of the things that, that I've tried to do as a division head is to create um, is to create a space where it's outside of work, where people can get together and talk about um, such things as imposter syndrome and how to have difficult conversations and how to negotiate and just topics that everybody struggles with and deals with, but there really isn't space to talk about. So a specific example this year in my division, I put together a monthly curriculum that I've called hashtag mighty are the women, which is named after it's a hashtag from the University of Washington women's softball team. That's their, that's their mantra. Um, but it's called mighty are the women and we meet once a month and we have a, a topic that we talk about. Um, it's outside of work. It's in a faculty house and it gives women faculty, junior faculty, a safe space to talk about what's on their minds. Uh, and I think just creating that, I mean, talking about it, naming it, and having people from all ranks and, and you know, aspects of faculty from scientists to clinicians, I think really, really helps with just knowing that you're not alone and hearing how people have, have managed certain situations and conflicts or, you know, I, I think it, it really is a, a great opportunity for, for women and others to just have a place to talk about what's on their mind. Sure, I just have to say our awesome fellows did a similar thing. They decided that we needed an outside space and so I think I hosted their first one at my house and they named themselves Ladies of the Lung, which yep. I thought was like the coolest <laughs> name ever. <laughs> yep, absolutely. And it was singular lung, not Ladies of the Lungs, Ladies of the <laughs> <Yeah>. Lung. <laughs> That's great. Um, thank you for sharing. I think you guys, I'm going to just summarize because I think these are, we always, I mean, I think it's great to talk about these topics. I think it's nice to leave our audience with some take home points and we're not quite to the end, but I just want to summarize some of the great points that you made around um, the positive influence that mentors can have both in terms of just individual coaching and helping people to shift their mindset, um, but also in terms of um, encouraging mentees to reach for the next thing and to apply for the next grant or position, um, both to get for the vote of confidence, but also for the growth that comes with that process, whether they get it or not. And then from a sort of division community standpoint, you discussed really both of you shifting our culture um, from one of really individualism to more one that focuses on community and rewards collaboration um, in, in all the different ways that you mentioned. So I think those are really interesting points in just in as we sort of shift this conversation to like what can be done um, to address this, this issue that so many of us, it seems like from the prevalence data face, kind of starting from training, but throughout um, careers for many of us. 
Um, and so just to follow up on that, I just wanted to, Anissa, you already shared some specific techniques. You talked about the shipping um, um, technique, for example. Are there other strategies that um, either of you can share, um, again, focusing on at the maybe more personal level or individual level, combating imposter syndrome or things that you'd recommend to others um, or other sort of strategies that have helped you cope um, during those sort of periods of self-doubt? Is there anything else that either of you would share? Yeah, I can give a, a pretty specific example that, you know, a I was told a long time ago that I've continued to do and that I recommend that others do as well, um, which is to celebrate the little wins. So I was told buy a bottle of champagne or your favorite non-alcoholic beverage um, and keep it in the fridge and celebrate the little things. Because we always say, I'm going to save save the champagne or the wine until the grant is funded. But you know what? You submitted the grants. Like celebrate that. That's huge. So, you know, really trying to celebrate the little wins. You know, I got a nurse FTE approved for my clinical program. Fantastic. Celebrate that. And trying along the way to give yourself credit for the hard work you're doing, the little wins that you get, uh, because those are just as important as the big ones. You wouldn't have the big ones without the little ones. And that is across all ranks, because I think in academic medicine, we so focus on the publications and the grants. But you know what? We have a lot of clinicians that are doing amazing work, and they hard, it's hard to find ways to give them credit for the work that they do. And so, you know, you finish your notes on time, go home, open that bottle of wine, like whatever it is, celebrate the little things along the way. You don't need to wait until you've gotten that promotion because there are so many little things that get you to that job, that get you to that place. So I started to do that. Um, and it really has impacted me because it reminds me of, oh yeah, that was a lot of work to get it, just to get that done and off my plate. And I'm going to celebrate that. And yep, I have more work tomorrow, but you know what? I'm just going to take the time and I'm going to celebrate that little win now. So I encourage everybody to have a bottle of champagne in the fridge and celebrate those little wins. Now it's my turn to say yes to all those things. <laughs> um, I totally agree. I full, fully support all everything that Terry just said. Um, similarly, I'm uh, because I have my hand in lots of pots. Um, I have in front of me actually right now, three different pages of sticky notes with like check boxes. And I do that be because me crossing something off and putting a star next to it is a huge sense of accomplishment for me. So when I tell my patients, my colleagues, my trainees to do to-do list, I'm like, yeah, exactly. She, so, so Terry, for, you guys can see what she's showing us that she has her to-do list in front of her. And so I tell people, if you, as you're thinking of your to-do list, you think of something really big that you already just did, put that on the to-do list and cross it off right away so that you start your to-do list with one thing crossed off because that's an accomplishment. So I totally yeah. agree with that. And then I think more so than helping in ourselves is so, you know, number one, the reason that we're so successful with imposter syndrome is it drives us to do more, right? And so there's parts of it that are okay. And that's why I say it's a fine line. It's a problem when it, starts making us not reach for things or be um, negative towards ourselves. We didn't touch on this, but I will say that imposter syndrome is linked to burnout, right? So we do need to cherish positive things and focus on that. And so speaking as a mentor and, you know, on the other side of that, we really need to 
go beyond what Terry said about our own successes, but also celebrate the successes of everybody else, right? So when we see someone do something small, say, hey, great job. Like I think I leave clinic every day telling my nurses, thank you so much for all of your work helping me and my patients today, right? right? Just those little appreciation, right? A little bit. Yeah, I totally agree with you guys. You know, just to comment on, again, celebrating the wins. I think that's so, so important. And I think, you know, we often tend to immediately, we're kind of working towards something big. And then we immediately, when when it happens or when we get it, we tend to think of the next step. Mm -hmm. So I can think of my own example. Like, you know, I I was submitting my um, NIH, my K23 grant. Uh, it got triaged. I resubmitted it. And I finally got it, you know, it was a year's worth of work. And then my next immediate thought was, oh my gosh, I have to write this extensive IRB. And I told my mentor that the same day I got my NOA and she was like, you need to just take some time and celebrate this, like forget about the IRB, you know? And so I, I totally relate to that. Um, but yeah, thank you guys so much for sh sharing this advice. Um, so before we conclude this podcast, I just want to ask both of you for any final pieces of advice for our fellows, trainees, early career faculty. Um, what would you say to the listener who is struggling with imposter syndrome right now? I think I'd say two things. One is, is you aren't alone. And, and there are many people that are struggling in the same way that you are. Uh, and the second thing I would say is talk about it. Find the people, find people that you trust, whether it's a mentor, a sponsor, a friend, a colleague. Um, there are people out there that are going through the same thing and trying to find that those like-minded people to communicate with and talk to. Um, really finding that support is, is so important um, for everybody, not just the early career people, but having those people to help support you along the way. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think my, my key thing is, is to focus on community and that when you, a community is what, what helps us buffer against burnout. It helps us buffer against depression and against feeling like you're in a rut and feeling like you're not good enough because you have your peers to help you. And my advice would be, it doesn't necessarily have to be within your own division, right? So sometimes that's hard. That's what ATS is for, right? When you go to the meeting I tell people this all the time, like when you go to a national meeting, make a point to at least meet one or two other people and make a connection because next year, when you go back, you're going to be so excited. And then when, you know, when I go to national meetings, it's like, it's, it's as much of a vacation as it is anything else because I'm seeing the family I choose, right? It is so exciting and so much fun. And I have, I come off from every national meeting on such a high um, that I think that that's really important. And that's because we commiserate and we talk about these things. Absolutely. Um, great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Terry and Anissa. This really has been uh, kind of a wonderful uh, experience discussing this with both of you. And hopefully this the content of this podcast brings our listeners a one step closer to feeling like they're not alone and, and everybody feels this at some point in their career. Yeah. Um, but um, again, this has been an extremely in informative discussion and uh, hopefully will be a great resource for our trainees and junior faculty as part of our career development for training series available on the ATS website. Thank you, everybody. This episode was brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, rate, review, or subscribe wherever you enjoy your podcast. Thanks for listening.